Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church and simply delighted to welcome you. Thanks for being here. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Actually going to finish up a sermon series uh, today, a sermon series entitled The Sovereignty of God. We've been in this for several weeks. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 23 is where we'll be today. I understand that in some of what I've already said, but especially some of what I'll say today and tonight, it's not going to sound like what you've heard other preachers say. It's not going to sound like perhaps what some of you would say. Um, and, and I'm aware of that. But I hope that at the end of this sermon, you'll at least know that I sound like what the Bible says. And, uh, and I'm going to try very, 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 very uh, carefully to, uh, to follow the Word of God no matter where it takes us. Uh, the sovereignty of God is a very, very uh, amazing and, and, and difficult concept to grasp. A God who is ultimate in power and authority. Let's talk about our words just a little bit. Come back to the main word sovereignty. Sovereignty simply means what? I just said it. Uh, ultimate power, ultimate authority. God is uh, a, a big God. God is a God for whom everything is possible, nothing is impossible. He has all power. He has all authority. He and he alone uh, sits on the throne of the universe and he reigns and he rules. God is sovereign. Having said that, however, though, um, we have to go a step further and ask ourselves, what does God do with his sovereignty? For a God who has all power, a God who can do anything, what does he do? And what we find when we look at Jesus is that he sets that sovereignty aside for the sake of saving us. It doesn't mean that he's no longer sovereign. It just means that there are some things more important to God than simply demonstrating his power, and perhaps that is demonstrating his love. God is, is a God of love. I want to take it a step further, though, today and really come down to the place where so many of us live, and, and that is just simply a, a question as simple as, uh, as this. If God is in control, then why is it that the world seems so out of control? Basic question, but it's a real question that many of us have asked. If, if there is a God who is in control of everything, then why is it that the world seems so horribly out of control? And sometimes my life, your life, uh, what, what is God doing uh, if he is sovereign and the world is in the mess that it's in? Uh, with that, let's look first at Matthew chapter 23, and then I'll, we'll talk about these things. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Again, I remind you. If you want to understand God, you look at Jesus. Uh, you see God most clearly when you look at Jesus. And this is a picture of Jesus. He is speaking, he is weeping, and he is sovereign. So notice what a sovereign God does in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Listen, words of Jesus as he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Okay, get that. How often I have wanted to gather your children together, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, the sovereign God, says, how often I have wanted, but, but you wouldn't let me. The question today becomes, does God get everything he wants? Does God, the sovereign God, get everything that he wants? Take a look at a, at, at a photograph. Uh, if, if you're following the news this week, it's, it's, it's devastating. Uh, what this picture represents is, is about the only picture I can bear to show you. 
Uh, some of you have followed this story closely. This is a picture of a, uh, a wall of a house uh, in Mosul, uh, Iraq. Um, Mosul is the second largest city in the country of Iraq, and it is currently being overrun by militant Islamists. This is the mark that they're putting on many of the houses. It, it looks kind of like a one-eyed smiley face to you, and I know why it looks that way to you, but this is not um, a smiley face at all. This is um, the Arabic letter noon. It's like an N, and it's made with this dot and this U-shape here. So this is noon. It's a letter, and it has a circle around it. So this is the Arabic letter noon. Um, they're placing this over houses where Christians live. The, the N, noon, stands for Nazarene. That's what they call Christians. It's, it's considered a slander. It's, it's, it's not a complimentary name. Nazarene's is kind of a dirty name. It's what they call Christians. So when they come into Mosul over the past few weeks, they've been marking houses in red with this letter that belong to Christians, and that's your warning. It identifies the house where Christians live, so therefore the Christians know that, that they know where you live and they know what you are. And they're really given two choices. Next time they come back, you can convert to Islam or you can die. And they're killing Christians. They're killing them. Men, women, boys and girls. They're, they're, they're killing them. Right now, it's real. It's happening. I want to say this because this is actually a beautiful thing in the midst of horror. Uh, this is what the neighbors painted on the wall after ISIS came by and painted this sign. The neighbors came and, and, and they wrote this. And it's kind of amazing. These are Muslim neighbors. But the Muslim neighbors are, are coming now and writing, we are all Christians. They're not Christians. They're, they're Muslims. But, but they want ISIS to know that not everybody, not everybody agrees, and so these Muslim neighbors are trying to stand with their Christian friends. We are, we are all Christians. You see the same symbol? We're all Christians. It won't do any good. Somebody said that it's kind of like Passover, where... The, the, the blood marked the doorpost, and when the angel of death passed through and saw the, the marking at the door that, that it would pass over the house, it's like Passover, somebody said. And I just say, no, it's not like Passover. Because when the ancient Israelites were making their exodus from Egypt, God protected his people. He protected them. But it seems as if the Christians in Mosul have no protector. It seems as if they have no protector. What does it mean? How do we talk about a sovereign God, a God for whom everything is possible, a God who can do anything and everything, 
And yet we live in a world where God's own people suffer. It's just the age-old question of why? We know that God is great, and we know that God is good, so why evil? Why is evil allowed to, to run rampant? And it just seems like no question is forthcoming, that no answer forthcoming to, to that question. I mean, why? And what is God doing? Now, the difficult thing is, is we've all asked that question, either because of the evil and suffering in our own lives or the evil and suffering of the world. We all just sort of say, where is God and, and, and why do these things happen? And by now, many of us, especially people of faith, we've gotten pretty good at sort of pat answers. Uh, we have answers to that question, and, and, and they're not good answers, but we're pretty slow to recognize that. And one of the things I notice when we answer that question is, is often one way or, or another, we make God responsible for it. So if, if there's a person who is suffering one way or another, we, we, we will simply say, you know, well, that person is suffering because God must want them to suffer. If the person is blind or crippled or sick or has cancer, you know, one way or the other, God must have something to do with, with your cancer. God's given you cancer. Maybe God wants to teach you a lesson, or maybe there's punishment for sin, or, you know, we don't know God works in mysterious ways. But, but one way or another, when, when we face evil, suffering, sickness, we, we have this tendency to explain it in terms of God. God. God's doing it. God's behind it somehow. We just don't know how. It follows a basic logic of sovereignty. If God is sovereign, then God must be ultimately in control. And therefore, if God is in control, then everything that happens, everything that unfolds in our lives must be from God. It must be because God wants it. But that becomes very, very difficult when you end up saying that God wants Christian boys and girls in Mosul to be cut in half, honestly. It becomes very, very difficult when you make that straight line from evil and suffering and sin, and you draw that line back and somehow say that God is responsible. You've just made God a moral monster. Standing on stage this morning in, in the praise group was, was Brenda Perdue. I, I was with her. I talked to her the day she was diagnosed with gallbladder cancer. And it was devastating. Gallbladder cancer is rare. Gallbladder cancer is, is deadly. The news was devastating for Brenda. Uh, I was also with her when she was healed. I mean, she's healed. And here's the thing. I find it impossible to believe that the God who healed her is the same God who would give her cancer. But that's the way a lot of Christians, the way a lot of people of faith talk, as if the God who heals is the same God who gives cancer. He can't be both. He, he can't do both. And, and here's the thing. If you want to understand God, you look at Jesus. God looks like Jesus. God reveals himself to us in, in, in Christ. And, and when you look at Christ, when he's teaching and working and, and, and on the earth, one of the things you have to recognize is he never said the things we say. When Jesus encountered misery, suffering, sin, evil, he never said the things we say. He never explained them away. He never said, well, this blind man is blind because God just must not want him to see. 
God must want to teach him other things, Braille maybe. God wants to, to do something in his life, and so God made him blind. God works in mysterious ways. Jesus never said anything like that, never, not once. He never looked at sin or suffering and evil and, and drew a straight line back to God. He never did that. Instead, pay attention to what the scriptures actually say. The book of 1 John sums up Jesus' ministry in just a few words, and it says this, the Son of God came to overthrow, to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Son of God came to overthrow, to destroy the works of the devil. That's Jesus' ministry explained in just a few words. He came to overthrow the works of the devil. Now, John chapter 10, verse 10 is another very important verse. This is Jesus' own words and Jesus' own description of, of, of his ministry. And this is what Jesus says. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come, understand there's a contrast here, but I come that they might have, say the word, life. I come that they might have life and have it to the full, abundant life, we say. So Jesus draws a contrast. He says the thief, the, the evil one comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come that they might have life. There's a contrast. You have to see that contrast. And you have to recognize in Jesus' ministry, he never draws that straight line from suffering and misery and evil back to God. Jesus draws a straight line from suffering and evil and misery back to the devil. Jesus identifies the, the source of evil as the evil one. That's just what Jesus says. Do you understand? It's sensible. It, it's obvious, but somehow we miss that. In, in my life as a pastor, I probably on a weekly basis run into somebody and say, Brother Tim, I don't come to church because I'm mad at God. And the world's filled with people mad at God, and they blame God for all of the misery and suffering and sickness in their life. They blame God for their divorce. They blame God because their kids cross-eyed. They blame God for everything. I'm just mad at God. It's amazing how quickly and easily we blame God for these things. When Jesus never does that, Jesus says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So anywhere in your life you see stealing or, or, or killing or destruction, you need to draw a straight line back to the devil. Understand, that's what Jesus does. In his life, he came to overthrow the works of the devil. And he did that by healing people who were sick. He did that by restoring sight to those who were blind. He did that by giving legs to those who were lame. Jesus came to overthrow the works of the devil. So, so, so understand, Jesus doesn't ever blame God. He never draws that line back and, and make God somehow the secret um, the, the secret God behind suffering and evil in, in some astounding way, the, the God who heals but also afflicts. Jesus never, ever paints that portrait of God. We must not either. We must not either. So, so what does that mean? For a God who is sovereign, a God who has all power, what does it mean that, that we live in a world where there is a thief, the evil one, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy? What does that even mean? How do we explain or understand that? What does that say about our lives? What does it say about God? Well, back to the scripture today. We have Jesus 
sitting over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you would not. It's a contrast. It's an amazing contrast. The sovereign God, Jesus says, this is what I wanted. I wanted it so many times. I longed for this, but I didn't get what I wanted because you would not. It's difficult to say, it's, it's amazing for a moment to let it sink in, but, but the fundamental truth is the sovereign God, the God of ultimate power, ultimate authority, he does not get everything he wants in this world at the present moment. He does not get everything that he wants. That's strange. And even now, as I say that, some of you say, Brother Tim, that can't possibly be true. Come back to Scripture. Jesus says, this is what I want, how often I wanted this, but you wouldn't. It's not just here, would Jesus go back with me into the book of Jeremiah? I preached this in a revival service this past week, Jeremiah chapter 3. Listen again, the voice of God. I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more. It's God speaking. I would love, I wanted nothing more. I look forward to your calling me father, but you have chosen another path. Does God get everything he wants? I wanted nothing more than, than to love you and treat you as my children. I wanted you to call me father, but you have chosen another path. Get this from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. I'm not cherry-picking verses. You, you just open up your Bible. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1 says this, You carry out plans, but they're not my plans. You carry out plans, but they're not my plans. The sovereign God of ultimate power and ultimate authority, he has done an amazing thing. He has, by his sovereignty, created a world where not just human beings, but even angelic beings have freedom, free will. Now, God has what he wants, and what he wants is to save us. What he wants is a world that reflects his will, his rule. But, but that's not the world we have because there are human beings and there are angelic beings who have freedom. And, and we make other plans. We choose other paths. So you cannot for a moment look at this world as it is and say that this is the world as God wants it. You cannot for a moment look at this world and say this world reflects God's perfect will because it simply doesn't. When Jesus came to the world, he did not come to proclaim that the world as it is represents God's rule and God's reign. No, Jesus came to say that the kingdom is coming. Jesus told his disciples to pray, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was nowhere saying that the world as it is reflects what God wants. This is not the world as God wants it to be. This is the world that sin has made. And that sin is something that I have chosen, that you have chosen. This world is broken. It does not reflect God's righteousness. It does not reflect God's rule. It reflects what happens when we are allowed to carry out our own plans. And evil men and evil women carry out their own plans. And you must not assume that God wants that. You cannot assume that God wants what evil people want. God doesn't always get what he wants because we have choice. We have amazing 
devastating freedom. So what's that mean for God? This picture of Jesus standing off at a distance, weeping over the city, is that, is, that, is that all we got now? A sovereign God who's sitting on his hands, weeping over how the whole world's going to hell? I mean, is that really all we're left with? A God who's helpless, hopeless, sitting on his hands, doing what seems like nothing? Is, is this what we're preaching? Is this the God that, that, that we're looking at now? No, no. What is God doing with his sovereignty? What's God doing in the world as it is? First, start with me here. God's great love is shown in his great restraint. God's great love is shown in his great restraint. Let me take you back to a passage we looked at last week. 2 Peter chapter 3 says this. We looked at this part. I want you to go back and get the whole part with me. Back at verse 7. The present heavens and earth are being kept for the day of, say the word, judgment. There is a day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Okay? Day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. The present heavens and earth are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But God is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. It's, sometimes I just think, you know, why doesn't God just squash the devil like a bug? Understand? He's all powerful. The, the devil doesn't have anything like the power of God. Why doesn't just squash him like a bug? Why doesn't Jesus just stand up today and, and, and make everything straight that's crooked in this world? Why doesn't he just make everything right that's wrong? Why doesn't he just do that today? Well, he's going to do that. that. That's what you got to know. That there will be that day when he will come and in his sovereignty and in his power, he is going to remake this world. He is going to destroy everything that opposes his love. He is going to punish the wicked. He's going to reward the righteous. He's going to make everything in this world new. That's his promise. But, but he's not doing that today. And you can wonder why doesn't he just do that today? Well, you need to understand something. It's pretty complicated because... You and I are mixed up in this. You see, God is being patient for, for your sake. You're in this. You're in this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God loves the world. God loves people. And when Jesus comes and says, it's over, you got to understand, it's over. It's over. And on that day, lots of ungodly people will be destroyed. This is what the scriptures say. And honestly, this is what our hearts cry out for. Some of you say, I, I, don't, I don't know about a God who, who destroys. I don't, I don't know about that hellfire and brimstone preaching. Were you not here in the early part of this sermon when we talked about what evil people do? Don't you want to hope that somewhere, somewhere in the cosmos, there will come a day when people like that have to answer for what they've done? I mean, beheading children, don't you want to hope that there's a God on a throne who's keeping up with that sort of thing? Don't you want to hope that people just don't live this life with all kinds of evil and then they just die and never have to face a judge, never have to answer? Since the present heavens and earth are being kept for a day of judgment, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a God who is going to stand in holiness and righteousness and once and for all judge the world. He's the only one in the place to do so. I pray that he does it soon. 
But in the time being, he's not doing it because of his patience, his great restraint. Because there's a whole lot of people in this, and when it's over, it's over. When it's over, people will perish, and he doesn't want anyone to perish. So you wonder why God doesn't just come in right now and clean it all up? Well, honestly, it's for your sake that he waits. So what else? We talk about God's will. What does God want? What is his will? Well, the second point right here. God's will is to confront and to overthrow everything that opposes his loving plan for the world. This is God's will, to confront and to overthrow everything that opposes his loving plan for the world. God is love, and his plan is love. And love is one of those things that can't be forced or coerced. Jesus looks over Jerusalem and says, how many times I've longed just to bring you to myself. I just want to bring you to myself. That is a God of love. He says, but you won't. Understand, love doesn't work in any other way but simply to hold out its arms and, and, and beg, plead, woo. But love can't take people in a headlock and drag them over. It doesn't work that way. So Jesus says, I, I long for it. I wait for it, but, but you won't. You won't let me. It's, it's, it's love. It's, it's a loving plan for the world. And anything that opposes God's love, you understand, that's sin. Anything that opposes God's loving work in the world, that, that is evil. And all of the things in this world that bring suffering and misery and, and sickness, these have to do with the very things that God is confronting and overthrowing in the world. We know this because of Jesus, what God reveals in Jesus. Jesus came to overthrow the works of the devil, remember? And that's still what he's doing. And we are his people. We are his church. And if that's God's will, then that means that's his will for us too. This is what our lives are about. We're supposed to confront and overthrow everything that opposes God's love in the world. This is why we exist. This is still God's will. It's still God's will. But, but, but next point, if we believe that everything that happens reflects what God wants, we won't work to establish God's will on earth as it is in heaven. This is the paralysis, I think, that comes when you operate with the assumption that everything that happens, God must have wanted it to happen. So if, you, if you think that way, then whatever happens, you're probably not going to work too hard to oppose. You assume that God must want that. God's going to work it out, whatever, but, but that's not what we see. If we know that God's will is to, is to confront and oppose everything that, that, that stands against his love, then understand, we have to see these things in the world and understand that God still wants to overthrow. God still wants to destroy the works of the devil, and, and that's our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But if we believe that everything that happens reflects what God wants, chances are we're not going to be very active in standing against the evil and the sin in the world. And honestly, that's a pretty good description of most of our lives, most churches in the world. We gather together and we get all up in a lather to, to just debate the fine points of theology while the whole world goes to hell. You understand? We whine and complain about persecution in the United States, totally ignoring actual persecution that's happening around the world. You understand? If somebody makes fun of the flag sticker on your car, you're not exactly being persecuted, brother. That's really not persecution. You understand? 
You don't know anything. Ask the Christians in Mosul today. Ask the pastor who watched the little boy who he just baptized get cut in half. Ask him about persecution. We live our lives in this kind of fall, assuming somehow that what happens must be what God wants, not really recognizing that much of what happens in this world is not what God wants. And that constitutes our calling. It shows us what our task is, what our job is as God's people in the world. We have a lot of work to do, a whole lot of work to do, because there's an awful lot in this world that does not reflect what God wants. Should we not be people who are very, very concerned about what God wants in the world? You carry out plans, God says. They're not my plans. I long for the day when you call me father, God says. I wanted to treat you like my children. You chose another path. Jesus says, how I long to bring you to myself under my wing like, like a mother hen with her chicks. You wouldn't, you wouldn't let me. In this world as it is, God doesn't get everything he wants. Brother Tim, I still can't accept that. I can't believe that. He's a sovereign God, all powerful he is. One day he will have everything that he wants. For now he's being patient. Let me ask you this. Anybody in the room who's saying that Brother Tim doesn't make sense, of course God gets what he wants. Let me just ask you a simple question. Even at this present moment, does God get what he wants from you? I mean, your own life, just be honest. Does God get his way with you? And you're just one person. Think about your life right now. How God himself might look at your life and say, you know, you're living a plan, it's not my plan. Think about that. Think about Jesus looking at your life and saying, how I long to bring you to myself like a, like a mother hen with her chicks, but you won't let me. I mean, if that's true for you, multiply that times the billions of people on planet Earth. I mean, God just doesn't get everything that he wants because he's left some of the choices up to you. And you don't give him what he wants. You live a plan, it's not his plan, it's your plan. You exercise the freedom God has given you to refuse him. It will not go on like this forever. There is a God on the throne who one day will come and establish his throne on earth as it is in heaven. That day is certain and that day is coming. I long for that day. But even as I say that, that I long for the day when God's throne is established on earth as it is in heaven, I have to struggle with the question, is is God even on the throne in my life? It's a question for you. I mean, you can say all day long that God is sovereign, but the real important question comes down to, is he sovereign over you? Have you surrendered to his power, his authority? Do you recognize God as the one who can command your life? 
Is he sovereign over you? I don't even know where to start in seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know even where to start when I think about the suffering around the world. I don't know where to begin unless, unless it begins with me. I don't know how God can get everything he wants in the world, but I do know that it's within my choosing to see that he gets everything that he wants out of me. Simply saying, let him have his way with you. Pray with me. Oh, sovereign, powerful God, we worship and adore you. We can hardly fathom a power that can speak the universe into existence, a God of quasars and planets and constellations, a God who knows us by name. God, you are great, and God, you are good. And one of the most amazing, baffling aspects of your greatness is that you have set your ability to command us aside that you might draw us with your love. You have given us freedom to make our own choices, and God, dreadfully, we make choices that are evil. We choose to refuse you, and often, Lord, we choose to do great violence against our fellow creatures. And God, the world is in a horrible, horrible shape. Forgive us, O oh God, for blaming you for the mess. Forgive us, O oh God, for assuming that somehow you have willed this world to be the hellish place that it is becoming, God. Forgive us for proclaiming with such force that you are great, but forgetting that, O oh God, you are good. By your goodness and by your greatness, Lord, we ask you to have your way with this world, to have your way with this church, Lord, to have your way in our heart. God, we declare that you are the God that, that, that sits on the throne of the universe, but oh, Lord Jesus, may you not simply sit on the throne of the universe. May you take your rightful place on the throne in our hearts. We long for the day, Lord Jesus, when you will have your way with the world. In the meantime, Lord Jesus, will you have your way with us? We pray these things in the name of the God who is great and good. Amen. Stand together. I want to give you a chance to respond. If, if you want to come forward and kneel, the altar's open. You're free to do that. Please come and pray. If, if you want to make a public decision or have me pray with you or somebody else to pray with you, come on down. We'll, we'll, we'll pray with you. Physical need for healing, the deacons will meet you on the baptistry side to, to pray for you, just like the Bible says. Whatever God is asking from you now, you let him have his way with you as we sing. Please.
like many of you, I've been a Christian for years and years and years, and there are seasons of my life when I really feel the, the warmth and the power and sincerity of my faith, and there are seasons of my life when it really seems far away and cold and, and dry. And that's why all through the generations, God's people have set aside times for what they call revival. I know it sounds like your, your grandma's word, but there's not really a better word for it. The idea is at times we just simply need to come back to God and ask him to rekindle that fire, that, that flame of passion inside our hearts for him. And that's what I want our church to do this coming fall. We've set aside that very first week in October, and we're going to do the whole week just like your grandma used to do set aside a full week for revival every single night. And, and it is not just about having meetings, it's not just about doing this for any other reason other than to bring ourselves back into the fire of God's presence and let him rekindle that passion in us. Having said that, I want you to prepare for that. Block out that week in your calendars. I know that's hard. It's hard for all of us, but let's do that. Let's push the pause on everything else and see what happens when we let God have that week of, of, of our lives. That week will be led by a, a revival team called Life Action Ministries. They are excellent. They've been around for a long, long time. Uh, they really, really are among the best of those who really understand what revival is and how to lead God's people to seek that. And so they will be with us in October. In preparation, um, a, man, uh, a man from Life Action, one of their staff members, uh, will be here next Sunday. I'll be here too, but, but Mac will be here next Sunday to help call us to prayer uh, and begin preparing our hearts for what God will bring us in October. So next Sunday, Matt Cockrell will be with us, and he's uh, going to do an amazing job of stirring our hearts for what God wants to do in the fall. So see you next Sunday. I'll be here, uh, and, and Mac will be here, and it's going to be a really, really good day. Tonight, I'm going to finish up this series with just a really practical message about prayer. Uh, with everything we said about God's sovereignty, one of the things I think we need to recognize is that there are some things that God will never do outside of our praying for them. There are things that God waits for us. He gives that freedom, that integrity, that dignity to our involvement with him. There are things that simply will not happen, doors that will not open until we knock, ask, and seek, as Jesus says. So tonight, let's talk about prayer. Let's talk about the mystery of unanswered prayer, and let's sort of wrap up this whole uh, thinking about God's sovereignty in a very practical way, how it affects our, our individual prayer lives. As a part of tonight's worship service, Stephen Hamm, who is an 830 worshiper, he sits in that seat right there. Stephen has Down syndrome. He's actually an amazing, amazing young man who loves to preach, and he's going to preach his third sermon tonight. Uh, Stephen typically doesn't take very long. Uh, you would wish that I would preach about as long as Stephen preaches. <laughs> so we're both going to preach tonight, but come back out tonight and, and, and support what Stephen's going to do. He always brings an amazing word. Uh, simply, the passion and purity with which he lives his life before God is in itself a walking sermon. And you will do well to, uh, to come and learn from Stephen tonight. I'll preach as well, but we'll see you tonight at 6. Brother Wright. Thanks, Tim. I had not been here very long uh, as your worship pastor until I heard Stephen preach for the first time, and I thought it was one of the most amazing things I'd ever experienced in my life. So I can't wait for tonight. It's going to be great. Wednesday night, worship choir relaunches. We've made some significant changes to the way that we've been doing worship choir, and I'm so excited. How many men am I hoping for, praying for? 25. 25. I'm so glad you know. That's a good sign. Hopefully a bunch of you guys who just said that are coming. So 25 men, high school and up is what we're looking for. I put in your bulletin this week several comments that folks have made about choir. I did an evaluation at the end of the year and asked a bunch of people, everybody that had come to choir at least once last year to fill out an evaluation form. And so I just said, okay, what were some of the things you liked? Um, and I put some of those in the bulletin for you, but I left one out. 
because you wouldn't believe it. So I'm gonna tell you in person so that you still won't believe it. Our youngest choir member, who is a middle school girl, when asked her favorite thing about choir, she said, choir is perfect. A middle school girl said, choir is perfect. I'm gonna frame it and put it on my wall in my office. It's such an amazing thing. It's really not perfect, but it's great. And we would love to have you be a part of it. So I'm not just looking for guys, but I am expecting, praying for, hoping for 25 men to be here this Wednesday night. Would love to have a bazillion women join the 25, I don't know how many that is exactly, but a bunch of women join the 25 men as we prepare to lead in worship. The first Sunday we'll have choirs, August 31st. So we've got a couple of weeks to get ready for that Sunday. Can't wait to see you Wednesday night. Thanks. Today was promotion Sunday in our small group ministry. And if you were there, you know our preschoolers, children, and youth uh, moved up to their new uh, classes as school uh, uh, has be already begun and, and, and is beginning in, in, uh, this, uh, this next week. It's a great time uh, to come. Uh, we encourage you to be involved in small group ministry because it's just another step in the discipleship process. So if you're currently uh, not attending our small group ministry, I encourage you to come 945 uh, next Sunday, and uh, we'll be glad to help out. Uh, also remind you that tonight after evening worship, we'll have a family meeting and the handouts for that are on the table in the lobby. Let's stand as we're dismissed in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to worship today to, uh, first of all, to say thank you for your uh, sovereignty in our lives. Lord, for how we see that expressed in, in little things each and every day, but also, Lord, how we can uh, look back on the big uh, things in our lives and how, Lord, we can, can see... Uh, Lord, your uh, work in our lives uh, through each and every situation. Lord, we just ask that you uh, continue to, uh, uh, Lord, help us not only just to be worshipers at 11 o'clock, Lord, help us to be worshipers as we go back to school and go back to work each, on Monday morning as well, that people can see the difference that you're making in our lives as we uh, uh, desire to be transformed in the image of Christ. In my name we pray. Amen.